Hey guys, how's it going? Pretty good, man. Well, how, are you? how are you doing? Thanks for having us. Uh, this is kind of cool because the last time we did the show together, we were all remote and it was the early dark days of lockdowns and, and it's good to be in the same room and uh, probably legally so. I think we're in, South, we're in the free state of South Dakota where people are allowed to gather freely and and do what humans used to be allowed to do. So that's Without cool. masks. I, Without I masks. know. I, I feel like I'm somehow naked here. Yeah. Right, yeah. A mask on. yeah if, you, if you're more comfortable with a mask, we can... <laughs> I'm going to pass. Yeah, yeah be you naked. should. So, James, you, you have some cool new information about about your new project. Yeah, that's right. I've, I've taken the, the, the role of senior editor at the American Institute for Economic Research, and we'll be working hand-in-glove there for God knows how long, hopefully until I retire, but we'll, we'll all have to see. But that's the newest thing. Really looking forward to getting up and running there. Yeah, and we've had lots of folks from AIER on the show, and, and hopefully you can you can be my new pipeline. I, I absolutely hope to be exactly that. I cherish um, people that understand freedom and ec- economics who can actually explain things in English. Which that is the tricky bit. Not, not always, no offense to some of your colleagues <laughs> in the universities, that doesn't always happen. They deserve some offense, I think. Yeah, yeah. just a little. And you are still in, in the university, right? Uh, I'm at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and also affiliated with the Foundation for Economic Education. Is That's that, correct. Okay. Yeah. Look at me, I actually am getting it right this time. Uh, well, I wanted to talk to you guys in particular, as your, your podcast, Words and Numbers, is one of the great explainers of complex economic ideas. And I've been wondering what happens when a government, the federal government, our government, prints six trillion plus dollars in funny money and uh, drops it onto the economy. And I'm, I'm an Austrian economist by training, so I could explain to you theoretically what should happen. But uh, let's talk about that a little bit, because I know you guys have been doing a lot of work with that. And I'll, I'll start with you, Anthony. Yeah, well, the short answer is if you drop $6 trillion into the economy, um, you're going to get inflation eventually. Um, but this, that part of the story picks up a couple of steps later. The whole story begins with deficit spending. Uh, you have a runaway government, and, and I suppose James would even take it back a step before that. You have a government that comes unhinged from its constitutional limits, which then allows it to spend and spend and spend. And politicians have found that, of course, people don't like tax increases. They don't like cuts to their favorite programs. So how do you fund? Well, you borrow. You borrow and you borrow. You run up these deficits. and. We've reached a point in the United States, we reached it perhaps a couple of years ago, that we have borrowed, we, the federal government has borrowed so much money that it's quite literally running out of places on planet Earth to borrow more. Now, you know, it is still the case that foreign governments loan to, to our government, it's still the case that Americans will loan to our government, but the growth of that lending is now become slower than the growth of the borrowing and something's got to take up the slack. And that slack is where your question comes in. It's the Federal Reserve printing money. That's the lender of last resort. That's how you get money when nobody else will lend it to you. And so the Federal Reserve starts lending and what happens? Well, you get inflation. And and roughly speaking, the, the reason you get the inflation is because what matters in an economy is the goods and services. It's this bottle of water, the fruit on the table, the the roof over your head. That's what matters. The dollars are simply tools we use to 
facilitate the exchange of ownership. I give you some dollars, now I own the thing you used to own. And you give the dollars to him, now you own the thing he used to own. It facilitates the transfer of ownership. If you start printing more dollars, you don't have more bottles of water, you don't have more fruit on the table, you don't have more roofs over your head, you just have more pieces of paper. And you get prices going up. And you know, the interesting thing, we've never dug into this exactly this way, but I would hazard to guess that the majority of people alive in the United States right now have never lived through a balanced budget. That's probably correct. Because it was what, 1958? Eisenhower was the last. 58 was Eisenhower, and people say Clinton no. had a balanced budget. Incorrect. He came closer than any modern president. Technically speaking, it was not a balanced budget if you account for everything the government spends. Because they, they reclassify things and they're sort of off budgets and Right, they reclassify borrowing from Social Security. Yeah. But yeah. If there are people out there who want to yell at us right now, um, all you need to do is check the, the debt level year after year after year. And you see that every, every year since 58, the debt has risen, which means definitionally there was no balanced budget. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, thinking, it, I, I like taking a couple steps back because because we all deal with the, the politics of deficit spending and the, the frustration, particularly today. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the Tea Party was, was right. rallying against deficits and debt and, and demanding fiscal responsibility, but that, that whole political ethos is virtually gone now. There's a few remnants um, in Congress, but it's, it's not there. And to me, there's a, there's a very liberal or progressive, depending on how you want to use those, those words, um, there's, a, there's a very uh, left of center reason not to have the government borrow and, and print money, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's the most insidious tax on working people, yeah, people that are holding so. dollars. Yeah, and it, it's thoroughly regressive. It, it's identical, when the federal government prints money and then spends it, you get inflation. It's identical to the government reaching into your savings account, into your retirement portfolio, into your wallet, and taking a portion of what's there. And it, it absolutely hurts the very constituency that the people who implement the, the new policy claim to be protecting. Yeah. So it, insidious is the perfect word that you used here. It's absolutely perfect. And yet... Um, it's hard to make that argument. I mean, like I've, I see young people on Twitter, so-called democratic socialists, arguing that, I mean, they, they love the last year because we, we basically have a universal basic income now. Um, we can't get people to work because they can make more from not working. And there is, there is a belief, a hope, a religion maybe, that uh, we, could just, we could just print our way to prosperity here. Sure, and isn't it interesting that under the Biden administration, we get exactly the same answers that we got under the Trump administration. That's yeah. right. So I think it's time for people to take a deep breath and ask themselves about their partisan leanings. Yeah. Where are the differences here exactly? Because we don't see them. There may be different preferences at the end of certain roads, but the methodology is the same all the way across. And it's actually become quite scary because you can see the voters becoming comfortable yep. with this printing of the money. Yeah. Because of course politicians are going to push as far as they can. And it was a big psychological thing to have the first trillion dollar deficit which we had under Obama. But of course it was the footnote, well it was the 2008 housing crisis, we have to do this. But people saw that the ceiling didn't fall and maybe a trillion dollar deficit is okay. And then we get into the Trump years and the Biden years where it's multi-trillion dollar deficits. Right. 
And you now have the rise of MMT, modern <laughs> monetary theory. Magic which, money theory. Which would have been a fringe theory. It would never have seen the light of day in, among serious economists, except for the fact that politicians held it up and said, here's some academics yep. that yep. are saying that, yes, you can print money and not have any uh, bad uh, outcomes as a result. And, and so modern monetary theory gets press that it should never have gotten. And it's interesting, too, Ed, because you and I predicted with, I think, 100% clarity that after that first trillion dollar deficit, that would become the new normal right. and nobody would ever think to reduce it past that point ever again. And I think that's been borne out. Yeah, we're just there now. That's if anything, it moved faster than I thought. Me, I think we're yeah, now two trillion dollar deficits uh, is, are going to be the norm. I think it was almost three. Yeah, with right, some of the things right. that were floated this time. So you know, it's it's not like this is magic to predict what's going to happen. There are certain immutable rules hmm. that we will follow on our road to oblivion here. Yeah. Now, now the interesting thing is, people will listen to what we're saying here and say, "Okay, fine, that sounds good, but where's the inflation?" Yeah. We're doing all this money printing, where's the inflation? That's a fair question. It's a really good question. and We think we know the answer. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And the thing you have to understand is that the official inflation numbers refer to prices of goods and services. So if the price of the bottled water, the fruit, the roof over your head goes up, that contributes to, to higher inflation numbers. What's not counted as we think about inflation are the prices of financial securities, stocks, bonds, these sorts of things. and. I hypothesize that what's been happening is as the Fed has been printing more money, largely that money has been going into financial markets, not into goods and services markets. Right. And so when you look at the official inflation numbers, the official inflation looks fine. But you look at the stock market and what's happening, the stock market's rising tremendously. And people don't get upset about that. Which understandably, they say rising stock markets is a good thing. It's a good thing if it's rising because you're more productive. Right. But in this case, it's rising simply because the Fed has printed a lot of money and the money has gone into there. And as evidence, I point back to April, May of 2020, when we had 14% unemployment rate, a third of small businesses were closing across the country. Nobody knew how long uh, the, the lockdowns were going to last. And yet the stock market was booming. Why would the stock market be booming when the economy is, is on the skids like this? Right. There would have been a time when we'd be talking about the price-to-earnings ratios. But yeah. those were all going the wrong way. Price-to-earnings ratio don't ma doesn't matter, and now they now become infinite, yeah, right? That, that's right. The infinite is exactly right. And we haven't seen that since the, uh, the dot-com era, right? And you, you remember what, what happened at the tail end of that. The dot-bomb era. Yeah, and then, yeah. We, then we've got the housing market, which is now precisely as it was in the 2000 aughts, and we all know how that ended. So I think we've got two big problems staring and, at us. And I think the, the way this plays out, and I think it's starting already to play out, is as, the, as we come out of the lockdown, we come out of COVID, things start to go back to normal. People become comfortable with making long-term commitments. And so that money is going to start to flow out of financial markets into goods and services right. markets. And as that happens, then you're going to start to see the inflation. And lo and behold, what we've had February, March, April, May, the June numbers aren't out yet, I don't think, but those four months were record inflation months. Right. We're back, it's back. Yep. And now we're just waiting for the, the house of cards to come crashing down and it's gonna be ugly. So I'm thinking of uh, um, an argument that Ludwig von Mises made um, in, his, in part of the whole theory of the, of the business cycle and the way that the, the government uh, distorts 
prices through printing money, essentially. And he, he wrote about injection points. And injection points were, were basically the places where that new money would flow into markets. And you're, you're explaining this in this. But, but again, back to my question about the left and progressives, they've been complaining mightily about how lockdowns have resulted in, perhaps unintentionally, I don't know why, but you know, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. And they don't tie the two together right. because if you're savvy um, and you're politically connected and you know how to play with money, um, being showered with, with funny money is a good right. thing because mm-hmm. you're going you're gonna to gather that all up. Yeah. Um, how, do we, how do we explain that to people? Because like, I'm, I agree with them. Like, there seems to be something disgusting here about the largesse of, mm-hmm. of certain people under a combination of lockdowns and, and, and rapid inflation of the money supply. Um, why don't they see that? It's interesting, right? Because when Ant and I started working together, we came to start saying things like the rich get richer and the poor get richer. Because that was literally true every time we turned around. Now we turn around and we do see the poor getting poorer. And it's largely a result of government interference into the lives of, of regular people. Um, me, I refinanced my house. I'm the net winner here. Right. I, did, I didn't lose. Who lost? Everybody who was living on an hourly salary and can't go back to work. Yeah. Right? Which is why we took a look at, at government pumping money into the economy. We said, look, we're generally against this sort of thing, but if ever there was a good excuse to do it, it's this. Right? When the government itself rendered all these people incapable of making a living, what do you do now? Yeah, and, and I would think, and James is, is, is referring back to the lockdown, yeah. and I think the best solution would have been to reverse the lockdown. The second best solution, and I don't think it's a great one, but it is the second best, is to do what it did, print the money. And, but I think to your question of how do you explain this to people, where so many people go wrong, and, and I include here very intelligent people, including politicians, some of which are intelligent, some of which aren't, um, but people focus on the dollars. And you see the dollar and you think that's where the value is. And the government prints more of them. I have more dollars, so I must be better off. And the dollars, again, don't matter. It's the goods and services that matter. And so if you're in an economy like we are now, where we're, on the one hand, we're printing lots of dollars, but on the other hand, we have unemployment rules that are encouraging people not to work, which means we're now producing less goods and services. We're, we're in this, have been for decades, this rising regulatory state that makes it harder and harder for entrepreneurs to start businesses, to sell products. That makes it harder to produce goods and services. And so we have less goods and services, and at the end of the day, that's what matters. How much stuff do we have, not how many dollar bills are there. Yeah, dollars are, mean nothing. They mean nothing. And, and I, I'll say this to my students, and they scratch their heads, and I say, well, hang on a second. So I'll give you a simple thought experiment. I'll put you on a desert island, and there's nothing. It's you, sand, a palm tree, and a million dollars. How happy are you? They said, well, not. And I said, well, what's wrong with you? You've got a million dollars. And they said, well, there's nothing to buy. Yeah, that's the point. Now, alternate desert island. I'll put you here on this desert island. You get no money at all, but there's a house, and it's got food, and electricity, and Wi-Fi, and medical stuff, and air conditioning. How happy are you? We're very happy. But you have no money. Yeah, but you've got the goods and services, and that's what matters, the goods and services. So what do you make of, uh, I'll use lumber as an example, because I I do see um, areas of the economy 
where there's there's been just radical inflation and and every one of these you know commodity prices and, and lumber there's all sorts of things going on there's there's trade protectionism and there's there's probably a housing boom that's encouraged by the markets why why are lumber prices so high and maybe they've just come back down I'm not sure yeah I don't I don't know the particulars there I can tell you in, in broad brush strokes part of what's gone on is uh, with the COVID lockdowns people have discovered that they can work remotely and be as productive as they were working in an office and so people are doing what comes naturally. They're saying, well, why am I living in the city? Yeah. That costs so much when I could move out and do my work just as well. And so they are, and that's, that's creating a, a housing boom um, as people move out of these cities. And that's contributing at least in part to the rise in the price of the lumber. And maybe that's more, I mean, it's, it's, it's been influenced and perhaps corrupted by political decisions, but, but it's a more real shift, I suspect. Yeah, right. it seems less like inflation and more like supply and demand. Yeah. 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 And it's uh, hard to tell the difference in right. the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so everybody looks at prices going up and they say inflation. Well, maybe maybe not. We'll, we'll all know soon enough, but not today. Yeah, and, we, and people have a tendency to only see the prices that go up. Yeah. They right. don't see the ones that go down. You know, I, I'd say to people about how the, you know, the adjusted for quality, the price of computing, sure. com- the computer in your pocket drops like 40% a year has done for decades. And I was bored one day and I went out and bought a 75-inch television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the prices come down every year, and we don't see it. No, you don't, don't think of it, because you, you write off, well, that's technology. I expect it to do that. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's deflate. Well, it's not deflation, but it's a drop in the price of this thing, but you don't notice it yeah. as much as you do the, the fact that the bread costs twice as much. Yeah. So you guys have a panel. So we're at Freedom Fest in, in Rapid City, South Dakota, and you guys have a panel coming up um, with the title of something like, Things are getting better. The world's becoming a better place. The world's becoming a better place, and and I am a uh, ascriber to that school that that believes that markets, despite everything that governments and politicians do, um, things have gotten better, and and capitalism has lifted generations of people out of poverty, and I assume that's what that panel is about. It, it is, and, and as you're saying that, you're bringing something to mind, and that is this this comparison of no matter how hard governments try to institute socialism, it fails. In, in fact, the harder they try to institute it, the more it fails. And yet, no matter how hard they try to restrain markets, markets actually end up working, yeah. albeit not as well as you'd like them to. And, and this is a beautiful case. In, in, you know, in, in the talk, we look at, um, at numbers, not just, yeah, the economy's better and people are earning more money adjusted for inflation. Um, but things that are counterintuitive, and you don't realize they're counterintuitive because you're used to hearing them and repeating them. Things like the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. False. Now, there are some poor people who've gotten poor, but generally speaking, over the past hundred years, the poor have become amazingly rich in this country. So much so, and I, this is not an, an exaggeration, that what today we call poverty in the United States, the rest of the world calls middle class. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're an insanely rich country, and um, it's, but there's a relativeness to that, right? And, and the, the element of envy that's always right. there, that's right. and you can hear it in AOC every time she talks about how she, she, her generation never had a chance at 
at Opportunity or Prosperity or however she said it. What a, what a bunch of nonsense. And I'm like, what a bunch that's ridiculous. It is. The fact that people are pointing cameras at her as she says it right. should be indicative to yeah. something. Right? But, but you said the right word. It's not a, a matter of justice. It's a matter of envy. Yeah, They'll call correct. it what it is. That is absolutely correct. And, and you got to something just a minute ago, Ant, that I think I'd like to reinforce. You can point government at any number of things and say, go do your business and know that it's never going to happen. And the, the best example of it to me is a non-financial thing. When Russia was becoming the Soviet Union, right, the, the Bolsheviks would go in and blow up churches. And the next Sunday, people would go have their mass at the ruins. Right? They never got to the level they'd have to get to to wash this stuff away. They just got to the very surface level of things. And when you look at human behavior, things that really matter to people, it's never on the surface. And come to find out, governments can't touch it on, on some very meaningful metric, right? Yeah. You just can't. And I bring up, uh, I bring up this, um, this theme that we've all focused a lot on, how, how capitalism and freedom and peaceful cooperation endlessly make things better and lift people out of poverty and create opportunities and, and, and material cool stuff that, that we couldn't have imagined just, just 20 years ago. But contra that... We just spent the last 18 months with the most shocking global social experiment in command and control authoritarian economics that I've ever seen. And again, I try to tell my progressive friends, um, yes, you're fine. You, you, just, you just got a free six-month vacation, and the government's going to send you this money, and you're not feeling any pain. But what about people at the margin? Right. What about people in India, and you're see, like you're seeing... Um, where did we just see this, this massive uprising? I'm blanking. Cuba. Cuba, yes. Well, how can I forget this? And, and I'm thinking about all these places, uh, typically socialist countries, where the, the government has done a tremendous job keeping people from feeding their families. Venezuela, Cuba, and I suspect there's going to be a wave of these, of these grassroots uprisings. What's the, what's the trade-off there? Because... This, we, don't, we don't know what's going to happen with this thing because we've never seen, I've never seen anything like this. I don't think there's ever been a global experiment. No. In, you will not be allowed to go to work. You will not be allowed to leave your house. You're not allowed to do anything unless we let you. There has to be consequences. Well, I mean, the biggest consequence is that people got used to it. Hmm. And they're going to cede their, their liberty yeah. to safety that isn't really there. Right? They, they're not getting the guarantee they think they're getting. But they are giving up what they know they're giving up. And, and that's, I think, remarkably sad. And if, if you look at living here in Particularly the United, Americans, by the way. Yeah, if you look at, at the U.S., all you ever find are young people whining about how bad it is here. Meanwhile, I, I've been with um, Iraqis when they come here for the very first time. And they look around and they say, where's the bad parts? They all think that we're shooting each other in the streets every afternoon, right? Because what, what reports do they get? Yeah. And the minute they settle down and take a look around, they all say the exact same thing. I'm moving here. Yeah. Why? Because any smart person would say that under the circumstances. Of course, yeah. you, of course you're going to do that. Which means immediately call into question the whiners because they're all, all way, way out to sea. They're so far out to sea they can't see the shore anymore. This is a great place if you just let it alone. I'm trying to broker a political deal with all of those folks uh, protesting and risking their lives in Cuba, if I could trade them for a equal portion of whiners, 
Yeah. Because I feel like those Cubans are more American than some sure. Americans are. I'd go two, three to one. Yeah. <laughs> we can work something out here. Yeah, we, there's a deal to be had here. And I, I want to say something in defense of, of the winers, um, because there, there are things that rightly should command our attention. Um, you know, things in you know, serious matter about, you know, transgender rights and, you know, the pronoun business and um, crime in certain areas and how we treat certain minorities versus non-minorities. These are all important things that we need to be thinking very carefully about. But notice what isn't on the list. Our children aren't dying. Some children are clearly, but it's not a top-notch problem. Um, we aren't starving. Some people are hungry, but it's not, again, a top 10, it's not even a top 100 problem. Right. Um, generally, we go to bed safe at night, some places less so, some places more, but again, even in the less so, it's not a top-notch problem. Right. The, the problems that rise to the top are not things that people, that humans have ever had in their top 20, let alone their top 100. And the fact that we can be concerned, rightly so, about the things we are concerned about, mm -hmm. itself is an indication That's right. that we're living in magical times. They are magical times, and it's a luxury to live in them, and I feel blessed that the accident of birth had me ending yeah. up here. Um, it, you know, we could put it into stark relief, I think. In 1870, the average lifespan was about 35 years. It's up to 82. That wasn't that long ago. Yeah, none, none of us and lived through it. it's a quality 82. Yeah, that's right. I mean, for crying out loud. And the, num the, the graph just goes like this. And it seems to be unbroken. It seems that next year it'll be 85. Yeah, and, and you know, someone's going to come back rightly so here and say, yeah, but hang on, look at the price we pay for this. The cost of healthcare is astronomical, which in one sense it is. In another sense, it's remarkably low. That's right. Because for multi tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 if you're paying out of pocket, you can get a heart transplant and live. Yeah, we've covered 50 this. years ago, you just died. It yeah. didn't matter how much money you put on the table, you died. We had this conversation on words and numbers once upon a time. And um, if I were living with 1870 technology, I would probably have all four of my limbs amputated. Mm -hmm. um, but infection, that's something we could just deal with because we feel like it. Yep. Yeah. And isn't that something? Um, it, it, it's really kind of amazing. And it gets a, a little more instructive if you dig into the numbers a little more. Because in 1800, 1820, about 40% of every child born, 40% of them didn't live to their sixth birthday. Mm -hmm. 40%. Right. And if you ask, well, all right, is it medical care? Yeah, partially. Um, it's also a diet, mm -hmm. right? We have wonderful foods, we have vitamins we can just take. These are miracles that, honestly, people just look at and assume that that's how the world always was, and it's not. Yeah. And, and, and the key to understanding the price of healthcare is to do the following. People will look back and say, well, healthcare was cheaper in the 1970s. To which I respond, you can have 1970s healthcare prices right now. Just refuse right. any medical treatment that didn't exist after 1970. That's right. And people say, well, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And that's evidence that you're actually better off. That despite the high price, you're getting even more value. That you'd say, yes, I'll pay this. And everybody knows it intuitively when you say it that way. Yep. yep. They all know. And, and taking it back to the conversation about inflation, 
Um, and I'm sure you guys have produced these charts, but you, you look at various sectors of the economy where, where the cost of things uh, far exceed the general inflation in the economy, two things that always stick out, and there's others, but healthcare mm. and education. Yeah, those are the and, and what do those have in common? Yeah, 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 heavily regulated. Yeah, and the more regulated something is, by and large, the more expensive it becomes. Yeah, but heavily subsidized too. I mean, I think about the, um, I don't know what the number is post Obamacare, but um, you know, back when I was doing healthcare policy, a majority, 52 cents of every dollar spent on healthcare was Medicare, Medicaid, and other government programs. So you have you have the government showering all of this this free money, and again, this is not real money because we're running trillion dollar deficits every year. Is it, is it two trillion now? It is. I think it's almost three. Oh, jeez. The numbers become trillion so- Trillion here, trillion there. You know, it eventually. so asinine that what's the point in even yeah. trying to figure out what it yeah. is. But the, you shower that much money and you get, you get rampant price inflation. Um, and you know, no offense to my friends from higher education, but that's one of the places that happens. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's horrible, it's horrible. And, you know, who what, was it Thomas Sowell who had that beautiful quote? I think he was talking about healthcare, right. but it applies to education as well. You know, if you think it's expensive now, wait till it's free. Yeah. Right. And we're about to make, I hope we don't, but it looks like we're about to make a horrible mistake with mm -hmm. higher education in making it quote unquote free. And I want to be very clear here. When, when politicians say free education, what they really mean is making people who don't go to college pay for those who do. It doesn't sound nearly as magnanimous when you say yeah. it that way, but that's what they're talking and, about. And there's an interesting thing here, Ant, because and you see this every day, I'm sure. Um, we always moan about how bad American education is. And it's so bad that people come from all over the world to study here. It's the gold standard. Right. It's as good as it is anywhere. Not K through 12. No, not K through 12, rate, but the yeah. minute you click into higher... It's a major higher, export. That's right. It's probably, um, I, I would say, maybe our most lucrative. I haven't figured out the numbers on it, but it's it's going to be pretty high. Yeah, I don't think it is, but I think it's top five. It's going to be yeah. pretty high, and because if if you walk on a college campus, the the um, the accents that you hear are very instructive. Mm -hmm. You can walk around knowing who came three, four, five thousand miles from some other place to come here and get an education. It's high on the list. Uh, I've lived in other countries, and when you're there, people say, "How can I get educated there?" Yeah, and they always want it, and that's interesting. But in, I'll, I'll make a public prediction here that James and I have made before, but we'll be official about it. What's going to happen here, if indeed we have free college, you're going to see tuition go through the roof. That's right. Because all of a sudden, colleges and universities can jack up tuition as much as they want because the students aren't going to be screaming, the parents aren't going to be screaming. It's going to be the, the government paying, well, the government, the mm -hmm. taxpayers paying for it. And when the politicians start to say, well, wait a minute, we can't afford this, the colleges and universities are going to say, well, what? You don't believe in investing in the next generation? That's right. And look at these politicians. You should vote them out of office. They're and, trying to hurt you, right? And, and what, what in the past was the most pivotal event towards driving those costs up? Federally guaranteed student loans. Right. Yeah. So we're just looking at a more robust version now, of the same. And there, we're just talking about tuition. There's going to be a change within the colleges and universities because there are a bunch of majors that have little to no market value. Right. And Currently, what happens? Well, if you study this thing for four years and you get a degree in underwater basket weaving, you find you can't uh, earn a living, well, that's on you. The college has already got its, its money. Now, if all of a sudden the taxpayer is funding this, colleges and universities are going to be under pressure from their own faculty. 
to create a proliferation of useless majors. That's right. Yeah. Because, and they're going to get more useless as the days go right, by. Right. Because nobody here, not the university, not the students, nobody, not the parents, nobody has to pay the price of that waste. Yeah. It's going to be borne by the taxpayer. You know, I read somewhere that incentives matter. How about that? Yeah. That's, that's kind of where we always end up, isn't it? And the thing is, I understand, and, you know, thinking about my friends on the left, you want to do something. And you think to yourself, if we just had a law, if we just had a program, and it's what we call magic wand thinking. Right. The government isn't a magic wand. You can't just pass a law and say, let there be this. There's all sorts of unintended consequences that will arise that you never thought of, that almost always, not always, but almost always, will make the situation worse than what you had to begin with. Yeah. And it, you know, going back to haves and have-nots and, and the, the idea of, of bailing out students with college loans um, very much reminds me of, of 2008, 2009, when we bailed out homeowners right. at the expense of people that couldn't afford to buy a house. That's right. yeah. Yeah. And so we have people that didn't go to college because they couldn't afford to or they went into a, a trade. Um, they're now cross-subsidizing mm -hmm people that have those useless degrees that they paid 200 grand for mm -hmm. and it's even worse than that right because who's getting hit right between the eyes people who said things like I would like to do that now but I have to be more responsible and save more and get my ducks in a row that's who's getting tattooed and it's exactly the people we should be pointing to and clapping yeah right that somehow resourcefulness being a cheapskate, right? These sorts of things right. um, are now blameworthy. Yeah. And we punish the people who live the kind of lives that 100 years ago we, we would have looked to make them mayors. And I, I don't know how you get past that and get back. I, I, think our, I think our conditions have changed so profoundly that we're gonna be stuck here. Yeah. And, and always the people who decided to be electricians are gonna have to pay for the people who majored in medieval lesbian poetry. And, and there's yeah. another factor that we haven't discussed which is once college does become free, there's gonna be a large contingent of students who otherwise might not have gone to college. That's right. You know, maybe it's too much of a gamble or whatever it is. All of a sudden, why not go? Well, screw it, it's free. It's free. It's for your party. Worst yeah. case scenario, it's a four year vacation. Yeah. yeah, it's for your party. And that's gonna put all kinds of pressure on all kinds of things yeah. that people will complain about later and will refer to as being fundamentally unjust. Yeah. Yeah, like it, I mean, we know that the chickens always come home to roost. Um, the question is, can people connect the dots? And I'm, I'm thinking about something I think you said earlier about the fact that, that families don't really worry about infant mortality. It's mm -hmm. certainly not in a way that was yeah. quite common just a generation ago. Um, you don't worry about whether or not your children are going to get fed. Um, you probably have a roof over your head. And, and I've, I've said this a lot, and I'm, I'm trying to sort of sympathetically understand um, young people that are turned on by AOC when she says that, that we've never grown up with, with prosperity. And I think, and I'm, I'm going to abuse the term because I know, I know there is no such thing as a post-scarcity world, but in practical terms, we're kind of in a post-scarcity world where people don't worry about that stuff anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, people still at the margins do, but generally, it's not a thing. So, so AOC and and people like her are worrying about other stuff, which gets back to this corruption in our I'll, I'll call it our morals, just our 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 sense of self-responsibility 
and and they want to outsource that they want they want meaning they're desperate for meaning but they're thinking that a politician or a program or a universal basic income can substitute for busting your ass and, right. and sweating it out that's right and and notice the problem we have here in a democratic environment if James is running for office and he says, look, you're going to have to suck it up and bust your ass. And I'm running for the same position. And I say, that's right. you can have anything you want. We'll just print the money. You've won long before, we, yeah, that's right. long yeah. before the, the vote ever happened. You've already won. Yeah, I mean, Elizabeth Warren, and, and I shouldn't pick her, her out of the lineup because every Democrat running for president in this last cycle was promising free college. Well, she had more plans. Yeah, she had, had a plan for everything. She had a plan for everything. She had a binder of plans. I don't doubt it, that. You said something important I, I want to nail down, and in, in that's that neither party has a monopoly on this. They mm. both do it. Yeah. Um, they do it with different things, but they both do it. Yeah, and if, if you can't take a deep breath, a step back, and see it, you've got a, you've got a problem. You should be able to see it, and you're, you're, you're willfully blind if you're not seeing it. You know, there's, there, I see Republicans, again, have discovered fiscal responsibility. All of a yeah. sudden, right. The minute they're out of power. As, as a cudgel against a, Demo Democrats now control everything in Washington, D.C. And there's a few with some legitimacy to make those complaints because they were, they were also challenging the Trump administration. But I, I think it was Rand Paul told me a story about one of these multi-trillion dollar COVID bills. And this was under the Trump administration. And the go-to line of defense for your typical Republican senator at the time was, we're not going to spend more than a trillion we don't have. That was their opening negotiating point. And I'm old enough to remember when those same guys were saying, we're going to balance the budget. We're yeah. going to shut down the government until we do. Right. Yeah. Right. Those were what the, days. the hell happened? Those were the days. The, that we would look backward and think yeah. that thing that didn't work at all was the better version of what we now have. Yeah. And, and notice a, an insidious, you used the word before, and it applies here also, an insidious game that they, have, that they, the politicians, have forced us to play. It's the game of the left versus the right. And we have so much, you know, such a dichotomy in this country. The left doesn't talk to the right. They think that they're evil and stupid, and the right won't talk to the left because they think they're evil and stupid. And the politicians on both parties have an incentive to keep us at each other's throats. Yeah. Because so long as we're at each other's throats thinking that the problem is the other guy, neither one of us realize the problem are the politicians. Yeah. yeah. Both parties. I say this all the time. We get the politics we deserve. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's just no way around that. And we don't deserve any better than what we're getting. Yeah. But we'll never get anything that we don't deserve. But let's end, let's end with something optimistic because I do think that that alternative vision that you guys talk about all the time um, a world based on peaceful cooperation and in a world where politics doesn't get to choose winners and losers in the culture wars as well right. as the economic wars, um, that's a beautiful place. And that's a place where you get to be whoever you are and you don't need a Republican's approval or a Democrat's approval. You just have to sort of live your life and take responsibility and don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. That to me strikes me as potentially I'm always an optimist. That could be the counter-revolution. We could get past the tribalism and the divisiveness um, with people that just want to be left alone. And, and I, I think it's coming. And James and I, you could tell the story of what we see amongst the high school students. Yeah, we see a completely different story. We go to high schools every year. I think we did 40 or 50 the year before the lockdown. 
and you would expect the high school students to be kind of like millennials, only worse, if you could begin to imagine what that would look like, and they're not. Um, they, broke the entire, they broke an entirely different direction. They seem to know that what they're going to do in their lives is largely on them. Um, they seem to know that government's not really the answer. It's not even part of the answer for most of them. Um, most of them are convinced that given the, the economic realities, they're probably not going to have a career like their parents did, or certainly like their grandparents did. But they're open to the idea of just kind of having a gig here and a gig there to put it all together. And if you think about what this is, you really just kind of take a deep breath and look at the very young people right now, 16 to 18. What you find is that they, they don't have the vocabulary for it, but they, they cherish freedom. They, they know that that's what they want. They just want to be left alone to build the lives that they can build. And, and it's, not a, it's not a selfish individualistic No, freedom. not even a little. They're, they're extremely kind to each other. Yep. And we have been to some of the richest high schools and some of the poorest in the country. And it's the same story everywhere. They're very kind to each other. Race seems not to be a thing. Yeah, they're even, they're just matter. friends. They hang out. They do. And color doesn't matter. You know, this kid's on the spectrum. This kid's not. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it goes so much kinder than our generation ever was. That's that's right. It goes so far into the marrow mm. that I'm pretty comfortable making just these broad statements and knowing that they're absolutely correct. And we never would have known if we didn't do high school programs. We've probably done what a couple hundred at this yeah. point. And we both walked in projecting our high school experiences onto what we were about to do. And we thought, this is going to suck, because high school was like the state of nature yeah. when I was young. Right? Life was po solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short at, at my school. And I went to an inner-city Catholic school for crying out loud. It was still terrible. And uh, that first day, it's a story I tell every now and again. We walked in. We didn't know where to go. And we were standing in the, in, right, up, right up to the front door. And there was a kid, very obviously autistic working his way through and he dropped all of he started his hands with the pill rolling and he dropped all the books and uh, two guys big guys walked towards him and, seriously I've been here five minutes and we're yeah. gonna have a fight already yeah and no not at all they picked up his books they handed him back and they walked with him to class now that never would have happened when we were young and it gave me such pause to think about young people differently than I would have with my experience are they getting better? Yeah, much better. It's not even close. So, so I think that's half of the story. That I have faith in the people. I think we're improving tremendously. The other half of the story is what about the system that we built on top of us with the multi-trillion dollar deficits? My projection is it falls apart. Yeah. It falls apart simply because we've reached a point that it's mathematically impossible for the federal government to continue. It'll continue until people realize that we can't go any further. And you know, how how long do we give it? I don't know. Maybe a decade. Maybe two. I don't know. But I think with that with that dissolution, I want to be soft here. I don't mean the end of the United States, but rather a retrenchment of the federal government, a yeah. returning to what it was designed to be—a very limited thing. Um, I think there you're going to start to see that these fetters that we placed on people now start to disappear. And these great people we're talking about, when they become our age, they're now leading. Not only are they, are they, do they have the, the wherewithal to, to, to build a, a new and better society, but the shackles will have been taken off of them. Yeah, and Anton and I often predict the, the fall of the, uh, the United States monetary system, mm -hmm. which I think is very much a probability. And then he always comes in, right when people are most horrified, he comes in and says, but wait, 
the, um, the productive capacity of the United States will still be there. This is a government problem, not an infrastructure problem, not a, a soul problem. It's just a government problem, and we'll be around it quickly. And I think ultimately that's right. So yeah. I, I, I love this theory, and I, you know, I've, I've been a romantic about the democratizing of knowledge and, and, and the access that people have to ideas and understanding of different cultures and the way that that makes us all sort of internationalists in that sense. Yeah. Um, we, don't, we don't really tribe anymore. Uh, you're describing young people yeah. who have sort of moved beyond that. And the trend has been the breakup of top-down institutions, right? Yeah. You know, big media broke up and, and big this and big that and the holdout is the political Big class. government, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the last one. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's coming. That's your prediction. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, in, it's in the math. I mean, we can argue the politics yeah. and the economics, but the fact is it just, the mathematics is unsustainable. And we're probably old. We're going to die soon. This will happen before we die. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm probably older than you, so it better because <laughs> I want to live to see this. Yeah, tell us, tell us, uh, where I didn't know about the high school program. Tell me just a little bit about that and like how would, how would a high school get you guys to come? Um, they can contact us uh, separately or um, you know, currently we're working through the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, contact them and you request us and we come we in. Come. Your, we come to your high school and we can be there for a couple of hours. We talk, typically we talk to AP or honors level juniors and seniors. Um, economics, public policy, political science. Uh, we do some uh, personal financial management. And if you don't want to have us in in person, we can zoom in. Yeah, we've been zooming in all, all year now. Yeah. And we've got that down to a bit of a science. Mm -hmm. So if you want us for an hour, one afternoon, uh, we don't even need a big crowd for that, about 15 or so. And this is at no cost no, to the school? None of this is at any cost to the school. We've, we've managed to find other people to pay for it. Nice. And yeah. if, if people don't know about the podcast, which they need to, how do they subscribe? Wordsandnumbers.org. All one word, no, no ampersand. And you can find us in all the major podcast players also, Words and Numbers. So when we said we were going to talk about inflation, I figured this would be a dark and devastating conversation, but I love the way you guys brought it around. Thank you Eternal. guys so much. Well. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot. It's guys. been cool. Great being here. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. Mm -hmm.